Welcome to this episode of Portraits of Music. I'm Ross Sievertson. And I'm Clay Couturio, music director and conductor of the Richardson Symphony Orchestra. We are here this afternoon with concert pianist and our guest artist, John Nakamatsu, and we are uh, talking about the April 23rd season finale concert. So, John, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, John, I thought we'd start off by just asking uh, what it's like to be a concert pianist, a soloist, how it's different than being an orchestral musician or, or a professor at a university or things of that nature. Most people in our audience, you know, have no idea what it's, what it's like. So uh, just talk a little bit about that. A lot of concerts where I live, I mean, enough to just play every night and, uh, you know, sustain a living. So I have to go to wherever people invite me. Uh, and that means a lot of time away. Uh, and, you know, I, I love travel and I love being on the road and airports and, you know, those kinds of things don't bother me. Mm-hmm. Uh but it is, like I said, a lot of time away from home, and that's probably the major um, negative point, uh, especially because, you know, I have, a, I have a son at home, and I like to spend time with him, but mm-hmm. he also knows what daddy does, and he knows that uh, I have to go away, and, you know, the reunions are nice. So, so for him, that's all he knows. That That's the lifestyle, right? Yeah, I, he, he's... He's he started coming to the concert hall when he was six months old, and he's seen me go away, you know, ever since he can remember. So, uh, but I always come back, and he seems to be okay with that too. So there's no drama associated with the trip. <laughs> coming home is always good. It's really good, I tell you, and I I love being home too. So it's it's wonderful. So, John, many people know you as the gold medalist from the 1997 Van Cliburn competition. Just just tell us a little bit about that experience, what that was like? Well, you know, for me, it was a great one because I won. But, yeah, <laughs> but, oh, that helps, doesn't it? <laughs> it? It really helped that, you know, you're, you're kind of positive about it. But, you know, for, for many years before that, uh, I was going to many big competitions and, and losing and not even really sometimes getting let in the door. In fact, I, I always joke with the Clyburn Foundation that, you know, four years before 97, at the previous Clyburn, I had a... T- I had applied and they wouldn't even let me pass the screening round. So, mm-hmm. you know, that, that that's kind of what you face as somebody who's trying to break into the career, but, you know, really has just the competition before you. So, um, yeah, for me, it was a last chance because I was already 28 at the time. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty old. Really? Competitors. Oh, yeah. That's, they're done by 30. If you haven't really won a big competition by then, they end because they won't accept anybody older than that. So I knew that I had a limited amount of chances left, and and I was working actually. I had a real day job, not related to mm-hmm. music. Um, I, I was teaching high school German, and I I was trying to meet make ends meet that way, and you know, still somehow preparing for a, a possible career. And then in '97, it to make a long story short, it happened and in, in the most unexpected and wonderful way. And suddenly I was uh, basically let into markets where uh, I had not been uh, looked at before. And mm-hmm. I think a competition can do that. You know, a competition can instantly propel you to um, marketability. And that's the business side of it, as well as kind of an artistic um, 
component, I suppose. But, you know, if it weren't for that, we wouldn't be having this nice conversation. And, and uh, so I'm very, very grateful for all the all the events really that had transpired. In fact, even losing all those years, because I think that that is crucial to your development as a musician if you use all of those stages in the correct way. Well, that was my next question to you, really, because many musicians know exactly what you're talking about to um, to be turned down or to be told, you know, this is not going to happen right now. Mentally, how do you help yourself? How do you get yourself to persevere? How do you endure and keep keep yourself up to to get to the point where you get that shot that it does work out? That's that's odd. Well, it, it's complicated. I mean, you know, we as musicians, you know, are, are basically taught to 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 bear our souls and be the most open um, exactly. publicly that we can. And then, you know, only to have doors slammed in your face or bad reviews or whatever. So you learn, I think, through a very small trusted circle, through a mentor, through in my case, it was my teacher, but mm -hmm. through many different ways of somehow developing kind of an armor that's a one-way armor, you know, that, that, that filters out what is negative, but allows in what is positive and allows you to shine outward. And I think we figure that out as we lose a lot, as we, you know, find out what life really is like in some ways and we look at the real realities of the profession. And if you have the total package, somehow you're going to withstand that um you know there are many people who have components of what it takes to do what we do and um you know they could be big talents but they hate travel or you know the, the slightest stressor will make them fall apart and or you know they could be great travelers but be mediocre musicians so you know you have mm -hmm. no idea who has everything until you just kind of do it and figure it out um so like I said, I, I am so fortunate to to be in this position, um, especially having for a very short period of time had a, another profession, and I, I'm, I really am happy. <laughs> well, I, I I agree with you, and and you do it long enough, you do develop a certain thick skin per se, mm -hmm. and it help, helps uh, keep some of the negativity out. But you develop a skin that is used in a positive way because that can right. go, that could be done either way. Either way. And um, I, I really think what you just said helps will help people listening who might be, you know, struggling in a way. And it doesn't just have to be for musical career. Right. It could be for other Anything. things, too. Right. Yes, sure. absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. So, John, when did you start playing the piano? Well, officially, I started when I was six, and that's when I started taking lessons. But actually, for uh, when I was four, I saw... Uh, a piano at a preschool and I don't know what it was, maybe the, just the nature of the, the physicality of the instrument, but I just mm -hmm. ran home and told my mother that's what I wanted to do. And she, you know, my parents thought that was odd because they were not musicians and we didn't have a piano in the home. So uh, given that I was only four and they thought I might give it up after two weeks, they bought me a little toy organ for Christmas. And I played with that for two years. And when they saw that I was spending an inordinate amount of time with this little toy and able to play things off the radio by ear and just, you know, picking that over going outside, they thought, okay, well, maybe we'll buy him a piano. And so they did. And that's really where it started. And, and I remember at the first lesson, I was just like, so full of wonder and amazement at that, that, you know, I knew it would 
be pretty much the focal point for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a lot of parents, when they have their child start piano, they they uh, have to get them to practice a lot, or they, no, not a lot, just have to get them to practice, period. <laughs> did, did you have That's that right. issue, or were you, you're the one practicing, they had to tell you to stop? <laughs> well, you know, in the beginning, it was that I wanted to play all the time. Sure. I didn't necessarily want to practice and do what my teacher taught There is me a difference, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> There's completely a difference. And so, I mean, my parents would actually have to set timers. I remember there was like a little stove timer that they used. And, um, you know, that, that only meant that I learned how to turn it back. So that 10 minutes became seven. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, they were on to me. They knew. But but my teacher also was, you know, she, she said, okay, well, you kind of have to also let him have fun with it. And if he's spending time at the piano, you know, doing things, as long as he gets his work done, she's kind of happy with that. So, mm-hmm. but I think that's kind of common. And there's, there's this, you know, little fine line between pushing too hard and not being helpful enough. Um, so yeah, I did, I did all of that. You know, I, I wasn't the, the, the little model student or of any in any way <laughs> and can you remember your first solo appearance with an orchestra oh yeah it was late for me i think my first solo appearance with an orchestra was when i was in college wow. and I, um yeah it was uh right after i graduated high school um because i had in my senior year won a competition uh and so i played with the san francisco symphony youth orchestra uh, when i was 19 and it was Sansons too Oh yeah, G minor. That's a great one. Yeah. 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 Well it's fun. And and the thing is, you know, like you never know, right? But every so often someone in an orchestra will come up to me and say, I was in that concert, you know, that we were we were on stage and I didn't know it. Or um and since then I've worked with the conductor, you know, uh, over and over. And it, it's just been a really interesting kind of cycle of, you know, people from the past kind of infiltrating your future. I, I love it. It's just a great thing about the musical world. I, yeah, I always say the musical world is is small, and you never know who's in the audience, or when you when you work with people, uh, first as an acquaintance, and you get to know them better, and it comes back and back and back again, and it's it's so much fun. That's right. Yeah, I love it. it, it that's, the, that's the fun part of our job, too. So we were talking about practicing, you know, when you were younger. As a professional concert pianist, when do you when do you find time to practice if you're always on the run, you're always on the move? What do you do? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. I mean, you know, and as you get older, your responsibilities just double. You know, you don't have sure. the luxury of just practicing all the time. I mean, a lot of students even are under the impression that once you start touring, all you do is practice and think about your concert. <laughs> and as you know, like a conductor knows, a musician knows, anything that you can, any time that you can get is just, you know, so precious because life just basically takes over, um, including, you know, dealing with kids or whatever you have to do. But I've also learned, I think in my life, kind of having a dual existence of being a normal, you know, regular high school, college educated person, and then having music done all privately on the side, I've learned to really just make the best use of my time so even if i get to practice for 15 minutes i will actually practice for 15 good minutes and turn off the phone and not and really work so that 15 minutes yields at least 14 minutes of work but you know if i sit there for three hours and really all i got done was 30 minutes then i've wasted two and a half mm-hmm. hours right it's, it's how you don't do that yes mm-hmm. it's how you practice and it's how you and so almost short bursts of time or more productive longer bursts are better as long as you realized you know 
what the limitations are. And, and so that's how I organize my time and, and I just grab it where I can get it. So it's anywhere between zero hours and maybe eight or nine hours if I can, if I can do it while I'm on the road often. I like to think of it as uh, in the conduct, conductor's perspective, you know, the, they only have a two and a half hour rehearsal usually. And there's so much more to do than just what's in that two and a half hours, but right. you have to prioritize. It's how you rehearse or how you practice. And, and how that's you right. balance your time. Yes. Right. I guess that's a life, anything in life right. is that way. Yeah. Right. Well, and I think people don't realize, you know, you say that you have a two and a half hour rehearsal, but really the number of hours that went into pre- preparing that rehearsal. Oh, right. That, right. That's exactly you know, that, right. That, you know, so that people don't really know what conductors are doing behind the scenes and, 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 you know, everybody else who prepares the pieces before, because by that point, we should be ready to play. That's the true. They should. <laughs> when you come to the rehearsal, you need to be ready to play, not, right. oh, this is our starting point. Yeah, a lot. As right. some, some of our listeners may think it's just done right only during that time we're all together, but there's so much preparation. Sure. A uh, soloist, conductor, the musicians on stage, everyone involved, if they're concentrated on what they're doing, they've done it beforehand and during the the actual rehearsal process. Right. Exactly. It's like it's like how people often think of teachers, you know, like, well, they work for five hours a day and they get their summers off and why should they be paid more? But the <laughs> hours they actually spend preparing lessons and grading and, you know, it's those are the invisible things that I think. You know, we we forget to mention uh, hours that are done on their own and not just sitting at a absolutely. desk either. Yeah, right. Very true. Very good point. Well, let's talk a little bit about the work you're going to perform um, with us, the orchestra, and and for the audience, the Rachmaninoff Second Piano Concerto. Yeah. How many times have you performed this work? Gosh, I don't know. I, I would say a good number. Uh-huh. I, it definitely comes up every so often, if not every other year or so, but um, then, you know, maybe once every two years, but it's, it's one of those pieces that is popular for a good reason, you know, because it's instantly lovable. Yes. (laughs) Every, every corner has some new melody that you think can't get more beautiful than it does. So, uh, you know, the appeal is great. And when you combine that with the fact that it's extremely well-written, it's, a huge piano part, but also really well integrated with the orchestra. Yes, in some ways, you know, more so than the third, and um, in a in a more, I think, ensemble way. Uh, it's it, it has all the makings of being just a piece that will, you know, be around forever. Yeah, and there's good. a. I always say there's a reason some of these pieces have these masterworks have are played over and over right. again, and and yeah. it will be forever because it's a great work, and. Oh, yeah. um, it's, it's the background to it is interesting to me too. You know, he uh, Rachmaninoff wrote this during a time when he was coming out of a depression. He was very depressed because mm-hmm. his, his first symphony was panned by a critic, mm-hmm. Cesar Kui, one of the Russian Five, mm-hmm. and um, he went to a doctor who, uh, Doctor Nikolai Dahl, who hypnotized him. Basically, mm-hmm. he used mm-hmm. hypnosis and helped him get out of this uh, depression, and so. He he helped him so much that Rachmaninoff dedicated this particular concerto because this is what he wrote coming out of depression to this Doctor Dahl in a way a thank you. It's amazing because you know and and when you think of how fast the ideas came after that after those sessions, um, and and you know how how intricate and how much how many notes there are for everybody yes. to play. It's really 
astounding. You know, I, I always marvel at composers at how they, uh, how how those things are even created. I mean, I'm really no composer, so I'm, uh, I freely admit no one would want to listen to anything I ever wrote. So. We try to recreate what these these master composers have done, yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's really something. You know, the unusual things about this concerto, I love to think, uh, just the idea of the piano starting all alone and these mm-hmm. beautiful chords. I, it doesn't happen that often. I can think uh, Beethoven fourth piano concerto, right? And, right. and mm-hmm. uh, maybe he was influenced by that. I don't know, but it's just the, and, and then the chords, you can t- speak of this more than me, the chords themselves at the beginning in, in Rachmaninoff's hands are so large that he was able to do certain things on the piano that some pianists can, some, um, not the same as Rachmaninoff maybe we would have played it because their hands aren't as big. Oh yeah, we all know about that. We I, I barely reach an octave, so you know I'm I'm just lucky to be even playing this stuff. But it you know when you hear him just reach reach for them and and get that it, it's really really an amazing sound. But there are other ways to kind of negotiate that you know. And and the thing is about Rahmanov's music is you know he may have written some of the most difficult music to play on the keyboard, but it always feels like it's written for and by a pianist. Unlike yes. some other composers, like ugh, there's there are many. Dvorak is one, Brahms is another. Sometimes even I'd have to say Beethoven for different reasons. But um but you know not all of that feels like it's idiomatic for the keyboard. But with Rachmaninoff and Chopin and Liszt, those people really were writing for themselves and they knew how to do it. And so we feel regarded even if they want to challenge us or scare us you know to death <laughs> <laughs> it is so true you're right it, it's very uh, written much for by pianists for pianists and and uh, i can think of other for instance um schumann and in some of his symphonies the scherzo in the second symphony it's very famous but it doesn't fit the violin very well. That's why it's actually on a lot of orchestra auditions. It does not fit very well. If you played it on the piano, I think it fits just fine, the way the movement between notes works. But uh, on a violin, of course, a great violinist is going to make it sound easy, right? whether it is or not. And uh, But certain, and it only makes sense that the, the instruments that these composers grew up on are played they know what fits better than than other instruments for sure. Well, and they've become masters of their craft. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's right. So uh, you know, this concerto has three movements, and the after the like we just mentioned the opening with the the chords, and then there's just these uh, beautiful surging melodic lines, melody, and it's in in there are several melodies in this entire concerto, each movement. Uh, that are just well known, and some I, I believe in the last movement is used in many movies. Uh, so these these melodies are so popular, some people don't even know where they may have come from originally. That's right. I mean, and if you know pop music, you may recognize even the theme of the second movement, which was a, an Eric Carmen song, and uh, right. you know, so it's it's really it's really ingrained somehow into our you know public conscious or cultural awareness i don't know what you'd say but um and when you hear it people are often kind of struck but that sounds really familiar like who, where did he steal it from but actually it was stolen from him that's right <laughs> so and uh, yeah and composers uh tend to do that they, they're influenced they're human and they they hear things they like they try to 
do certain things based off of that. And sometimes it ends up sounding like stealing and sometimes maybe not. But uh, (laughs) well, let me ask you this, uh, um, performing this work with with orchestras, uh, for instance, the second movement where you start again, that's a movement where you start by yourself and then the flute comes in. I mean, how do you how do you treat that? How do you collaborate with members of the orchestra when there's a solo that comes in as you're playing? Well, now that can be really fun because that's that's like real chamber music, yes. you know, where we're we're really working with one or a section or some, you know, a very small group of people, and that's what I think draws uh, people in, you know, in in terms of the intimacy of the the piece. You know, you you think of the big moments and it's really exciting, and you have these incredible orchestral outbursts, and, and that's all like, that's wonderful. But some of my favorite moments are actually the ones where where it's the most quiet. Um, and you're talking about the second movement, the return yeah. of the theme, for example, when you first heard it in the winds with solo winds, the end is with the whole, you know, string section. And yes. that's just a transformation of that same material, um, almost note for note, but in a completely different way. And and that's, you know, that's the wonderful thing about Rachmaninoff, but also just about hearing this music with an orchestra. I'm actually, and, I'm actually getting goosebumps you saying that because you know these melodies, the end of the second movement, like you're saying, uh, you you do these pieces enough, and it brings back memories for me. I, I, I my orchestra instrument's cello, and I remember touring in in uh, in England uh, <laughs> with an orchestra playing, and there uh, it was this piece, and that moment you're talking about, I could, I just it evokes a memory that is. It's just unearthly. It's just a beautiful, you know, and, and so, and that's, right. a, I believe, reasons why some people uh, go to concerts too. They sure. may have a memory of this piece in per, per se, and, and that they want to recapture sometimes that, that, that memory, and they go back and listen to it again, and it, it makes a new memory for them sometimes. Right. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's why people keep coming back in some ways. You know, you mentioned... Uh, uh, the intimacy of one-on-one or chamber music versus the full orchestra. Mm-hmm. I like to think of it as the orchestra itself has its own personality um, mm-hmm. and a sound. A certain Each orchestra has its sound, and it is comprised of all these personalities within the orchestra. And so... When it's when it is one on one, like like the flute with the with the piano in the second movement, I love to hear the personality come out of our that specific player with the with with the uh, piano, and uh, it's just like and you get that sense of freedom that you get from that player as a conductor that you want for your player, and then the culmination of all these personalities together bring with that color of the orchestra itself it's it, it is two i it's two ideas but it becomes many ideas become one idea and it's just it's just a remarkable thing that's to me what's special about symphony orchestras well and, and you know you mentioned how a piece will evoke a memory i know if i listen to a piece that's done by the rso the same piece that's done by the london symphony or or another orchestra it it evokes a similar memory but it's different than you know the than the than the orchestra that I first heard that piece. Well, and my illustration was a, a memory of an actual musical, you know, uh, performance. But for most people, I, I think it evokes an emotion, right? That then sparks another memory. It doesn't have to be from a musical moment, or right? Not. And that's, right. Yes, that's right. what right. touches. Right. That's what really touches people. That's how music really, really touches people. I think. 
Well, the other thing that's okay. really interesting, actually, is um, when you uh, a lot of people come to come to what you're saying, you know, the, the musical experiences through recording. Yes. And sometimes it's the very first time they're in a hall and hear this piece live. So even yes. if you know it from hearing it or have have heard some themes from it or whatever, it's such a moving experience when you actually feel it going through you in the hall. And that's what I think people, that's why people keep coming to the hall, you know, the people who already know. And that's what I would love to tell people who don't know, normally come to a, a live event and, you know, would, would choose to just kind of hear music through um, an electronic medium or something. But, you know, there's no, there's no substitute for just having something created and go right through you at that moment and, and simultaneously through everyone in the hall. And that's a really exciting feeling, you know, because we don't really know what's going to happen. And all the things you talked about, you know, those things come together very quickly. And um, so there's a, even on stage, a lot of times there's this incredible excitement that, you know, we're trying to harness and, and just uh, figure out in all different respects. And, and it's just a, it's a great, great experience. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I love, I do love recordings. Uh, they are great, but, but it's, it's, um, how do I explain it? There's a separation of some sort listening to a recording in my mind. Right. If, if you do enough live performance, if you go to enough live performances, you know the, the difference of what I'm trying to, to say. It's, of course, it's still beautiful and everything's great, but to have the vibrations and the sound envelop you in the room from a live group, from our, you know, and even the perspective of, of listening to it in the audience versus being right. on stage, stage yes. with, right. with the musicians itself is a different, it's all perspective. And you have different That's perspectives right. of where you might sit in the room um, but just to be in the room at all is, is, is special for any live performance. And I do agree, anything can happen. Now, right. <laughs> good or bad, no. Uh, <laughs> but we, we hope for the, for, you know, right. for the good. And there are, a, there are times I can feel where it's going so well, it's like you want to even get out of the way. It's like, this is right. going so well. This is really a special moment. You can feel that amongst the musicians. I think it's just a chain reaction with with players on stage and to me that's that's a that creates certain adrenaline that you you have to harness and make can control enough right you know that and that sparks more creativity on stage i think that's right we can't just quit while we're ahead that's <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> which which can happen at times if you can lose concentration right yeah uh, yeah sure. many things well john i really appreciate the time uh really look forward to having you come and, and, and play for our audience. Um, you're such a I remarkable do. musician, but you have that rare combination of being a genuinely nice person and with such oh, artistry. Yes, absolutely. And um, we'll, we'll have a great time. I just yeah. can't wait. It'll be wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you bet, John. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to spend with us. Absolutely. I look forward to it. Well, it's my pleasure to introduce our concertmaster of the Richardson Symphony Orchestra, Elizabeth Adkins, and she's with us today because uh, uh, one of the works in the program, Rimsky-Korsakov-Scheherazade, uh, showcases her with many solos. So, Elizabeth, thank you for being here. My great pleasure, Clay. So, let's talk a little bit about 
the position of concertmaster? What are some of the duties that, that our audience may not know except seeing where you sit and, and you know, leading in certain ways? But what are the duties, in your opinion, and what makes a good concertmaster, in your opinion? Yeah, so um, the concertmaster is uh, the principal first violinist and the one that comes out to tune the orchestra. Um, lots of times people wonder kind of why they're applauding for this person. Um, but basically, I consider that the concertmaster is the representative of the orchestra, sort of the face of the orchestra in that mm-hmm. sense. And we are accepting the audience's applause for the orchestra itself. Mm-hmm. Then uh, the conductor could be a music director. It could be a guest conductor. Um, so that that uh, person comes out afterwards and, and gets separate applause along with the orchestra. But I think it's a nice thing to acknowledge the orchestra per se. Um, and the concert master kind of uh, coordinates with the conductor and the rest of the orchestra. Uh, I would be responsible for doing the bowings for all the strings, mm-hmm. which means that uh, when people marvel from the audience that all of our bows are going the same direction at the same time, that has to be coordinated. So um, it's, it's important not just for the look of it but also for the sound of it Mm -hmm. and having the experience to choose bowings that will support both what the composer is asking of the orchestra and what the conductor might want um is uh is an art (laughs) to to doing it that i quite enjoy you know and and speaking of bowings uh you have to bow for the section as opposed to just an individual sometimes. What works for a solo instrument may not work for a section. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I think that uh, if, if you could imagine a dance troupe and trying to assign choreography to them, you have to know your people. You have to know who can do splits and who can't. And it's uh, <laughs> important. Um, but it's probably maybe even closer, like like uh, an army battalion marching. That if some people start on the right foot and some people start on the left foot, it's not going to have any kind of a uniform look to it. Um, so it's it's uh, as I said, both for the look, but there's also a lot of content in it as well. Absolutely. Um, one more thing about Boeing, I can think of uh, just from experience. Violins and violas, just by the nature of their instrument and the way they hold it and the, the direction of where of the instrument itself in relation to the body is different than the cellos and basses. So sometimes the cello and basses will say, well, we're, we're facing this way and th- so the bow's this way. And so oh, right. we might uh, agree to disagree on certain certain things. Sure. It's the old joke, you know, no yeah. two string players are going to agree on the, on the some bowing. So it's, but for the most part, people are very nice and they try to do what's right for the group. We do. We do. And I, I think that kind of forging that bond among the principles of the string sections in the orchestra uh, is an important thing because then well, for the conductor, but in some cases, in spite of the conductor, um, <laughs> that we we are able to to have a certain level of unanimity and ensemble and precision that we like to get for ourselves as 
an orchestra um, and to have a certain standard for the group, no matter who's standing up there. Absolutely. I would also say about the concertmaster, uh, of course, the concertmaster helps lead the orchestra with, with the conductor in the sense that other instruments, not just string instruments, but principal players of, of wind instruments, especially if they have solos, are looking at not only the conductor's baton and the conductor's face and everything, but the bow of the concertmaster, because that person is physically physically playing, doing exactly, you know, in the same sense, a member of the orchestra. That's something that those players can grasp onto as opposed to just the baton itself. Yeah, I think sometimes the concertmaster is able to sort of translate what the conductor is doing for the orchestra, mm-hmm. but uh, I I found a couple of times that it extends even past the orchestra. I remember doing a Messiah once, um, Handel's Messiah, with a very famous conductor who shall remain nameless. It was <laughs> really really hard to follow. And I can't imagine I that. No. Was of course not. <laughs> no, no one I know, um, but. It was funny because uh, I was asking some of the choir members, I said, well, how are you guys able to follow? And they said, oh, our director told us just to watch you. (laughs) 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 So I thought, oh, well, I probably should have known that when I was just putting my violin down and not doing anything. Um, But yeah, uh, I think the concertmaster can... Be, it's a facilitating job, I think, is, is a good way to put it, because you can make things easier. You can help the conductor get his or her ideas across to the orchestra. Um, you can choose bowings that prevent certain kinds of problems. And in some ways, if you're really good at your job, people don't even realize that you've done it well. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about the uh, Scheherazade by Rimsky-Korsakov. Um, it's, of course, a very famous work in the orchestral repertoire. And for Rimsky-Korsakov himself, I would think, if not his most famous work, one of the very, you know, up there, three, I, I would think yeah. most people know Scheherazade, Capriccio Espanol, mm-hmm. and Russian Easter mm-hmm. Overture. Those and are the Russian three, Overture, I, yeah. would, I would think. But this is, of wow. those three, the large-scale work. And uh, it's unusual in the sense that, you know, it does have four movements. It's not, it's not a symphony, like a Beethoven symphony per se, or, but it does have four movements to it. Uh, it's, it's been known as a symphonic suite. They call it a suite because it's not a symphony. Right. Um, and it has ideas of stories to them, but, you know, Rimsky-Korsakov didn't want to put a specific story to each of these movements. He was very vocal about that. Uh, but there, but he was he allowed there to be titles to these movements that evoke like a sense of of story. Um, yes. And then, the, the, just just the nature of the piece itself, Scheherazade was a, a princess that was uh, um, married to a sultan who had many other wives before that he would kill them off because he was he was bored with them and he would say that they cheated or something you know right. always make an excuse and so Scheherazade the whole story is that Scheherazade just to, to keep her staying alive would keep telling stories to this sultan and always live a leave a cliffhanger each night 
So he would want to keep her alive so hear she could one. hear the next part of the story. Right. And so some of these are the stories in this piece that she would, would tell. And Scheherazade herself is really represented by the solo violin. So, mm-hmm. so when you approach these solos, and it's, there are solos in each of these movements of the solo violin, how do you approach the solo itself? What, what do you think about when you're thinking of performing these solos? It's actually something that I have given a lot of thought to. And I, in my version of Scheherazade, I'm very aware of the female aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that in addition to being mysterious and creative and inventive, she also has to be alluring and exotic yes. to keep the attention of the Sultan. And I, uh, I'm also aware of a transition during the solos because at the beginning, she's not really sure if she's going to survive or not. So it's it's the same material, um, but cast a little bit differently in each movement. Then at the very end, it comes back in the original form. But to me, I like to project at that point, a calm and a confidence um, that she, in fact, has won him over. And, you know, hopefully uh, he's had a character arc at this point. We don't know that for sure, but <laughs> <laughs> we do hope so. Um, but uh, I, I think it's really interesting from my standpoint, not just to play each solo as a standalone thing, but to to have a feeling of de- development through the piece. I'm so glad you said that. Uh, you, you're right. The very first entrance uh, that of that solo violin in the first movement, calm but but also confident, versus like in the opening of the last movement, right after the very beginning, another uh, solo is a little more abrupt sounding, uh, maybe a little more experienced, and just trying to get out of things in a different way. Versus, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and then of course at the very end, you're right, the the thought of uh, the solo as being like at the beginning in a way, but but the same but also there is a difference at the end as well and then the solos throughout uh, especially the third movement with the about the young prince and the young princess maybe that's uh some of the allure that you know not just about herself but of telling the story itself uh very compassionate yes. and, uh-huh and i think that the um the nice thing about having these solos sort of interwoven through the piece is that at those points, you were reminded that you're hearing a story because we get very involved in the story and pulled into the story and they're exciting and it's fantastic orchestration. There's a a, uh, a very graphic orchestral oral representation of a shipwreck, for example. Yes. I, at least I think that's what the, the one is. Uh, um with a huge cymbal crash and you can almost hear waves flowing, flowing over and, and splashing. And um, it's the, the orchestration is really so wonderful. Which, and, which he was well known for. Yes, absolutely. Yes, exactly. And, and I think this is the kind of piece that made people fall in love with the orchestra, whether they heard um, heard this piece or a piece like it, uh, you know, in, in movies or TV, or if they heard, uh, maybe went to children's concerts as, a, as young people, um, 
but this is the kind of music that gives classical music a good name. Absolutely. And it is amazing how a sound can evoke uh, uh, something like a wave, like a cymbal sound right. is the crash of the wave back onto the ocean. And I should mention, uh, if, if Scheherazade is the solo violin, the sultan does have his own theme. I mean, the, the piece starts with the, with the sultan himself. And that theme yes. comes throughout the, the piece as well. So you hear the character change of the Sultan along with Scheherazade throughout all four movements. And if you're paying attention, yes. you can hear the story throughout the mm. whole piece. Yes, for, for sure. You know, in addition to the violin, there are other solos solos with amongst different players in the orchestra. And it's really this piece is known to bring out all of those solos and show off the orchestra. So, you know, Rinsky-Korsakov had it all. He did it by, you know, orchestrating and having lush sound. He had uh, different effects, uh, like different use of harmonics in in Ponticello and and just just special effects that the orchestra can evoke different sounds, which evokes different moods. Right. And the use of of the harp itself, Along with the solo violin, there's almost a, a counterplay in a way. Would you say, Elizabeth? Absolutely. And you were asking about my concept of the solo, that the harp and the, the woodwinds, before I get my first solo, there's these sort of static chords that place, for me, places squarely back in history. And so my own personal little love uh, technique here is that I hear the first woodwind chord and I say once upon a time and the second woodwind chord is in the land far away (laughs) oh yes Uh is there was a young woman fourth chord named Scheherazade and boom here comes the harp violin solo that's wonderful it's it that helps me get into it where it's not me playing this solo, but hopefully me being able to embody all of these things in this beautiful, beautiful music. And uh, it can be daunting because you want it to be as beautiful as possible and you want to be able to have the audience love it as much as you do. And uh, so then sometimes it's easy to get kind of self-absorbed and think, oh, I need to vibrate on my third finger. And, you know, I hope this note's not out of tune and that sort of thing. But I think for me, this puts me in another place where interpretively uh, I'm able to go then effectively. You know, it, that's what's remarkable about performing to me is it... It takes so much concentration, but you don't want to lose out on things because you're only concentrating. Right. You know, you can lose out on special moments, but you have to concentrate yes. on the technical aspects of things, right. like the vibrato and intonation and all. But that can become stale really quick. So you do have to think mm-hmm. of what makes this human, what makes this special uh, to people. What, And so you're trying to bring those things out, like everything Elizabeth just mentioned. And right. the amount of concentration i think that takes and then also relaxation from concentrating right to to produce this special performance yes and and it's uh amazing i think that that when you bring this up for people to realize how much is going through a musician's head mm-hmm. at, at any given time uh in a performance like this uh that it's a really but uh, musicians have their techniques and their skills honed to such a high level of 
precision that uh, we, we sort of forget it because it's our bread and butter day in and day out. Right. But, but it's quite a remarkable human achievement. You know, we uh, mentioned there's a section of the sea and then there's crashes and there's a, a wreck and all these things. Um, I just have to mention that Rimsky-Korsakov was a naval officer at, oh, was at he? one point in his life. Yeah, and I, I, not that there's has to do with this, but, you know, that that, that experience he right, had from sure. that could lead to the thoughts about how he would write this. And he was a member of a group called the Russian Five. There were five gentlemen. He grew, he joined a little bit later than the first, uh, I believe it was it was Balikarev, Cesar Kui, Muzorsky, Rimsky-Korsakov, and uh, Borodin. Those were the five. And they all, they all came from non-musical backgrounds. I mean, they did not really have conservator, uh, right. conservatory training, per se. So they learned a lot of it on their own. They, they went places to try to well, figure sure. things out. But I think that background and their idea of trying to bring a nationalistic sound, a, a, a Russian certain sound, by using folk tunes and, and certain harmonies, changes of harmonies, I can't get too much detail, but instead of a regular uh, major chord, they would make right. a major, an augmentation of it, an augmented right. chord, and, and leading different harmonies to what they would say would evoke a, a Russian sound. But the, the, I, And I think what you're talking about also, that those kinds of chords, um, you might call it modal uh, even, and I think that helps that uh, exotic placement uh, of this in the land of fairy tale exactly. and in the land of long ago um, that that it's really wonderfully done. Exactly. I mean, they didn't invent these things. I mean, the whole tone scale, which means a major step all the way right. through, no no uh, half steps or th- that had existed before, but they used it in a way to make it sound exotic. And so it's it's how you don't have to invent something. It's just how you use it. In, in some yes, creativity exactly. ways. When, when you say modal, what, what do you mean by that? It's a kind, it's a sound, um, for people that play jazz and do, do uh, um, it's, a, it's a very old sounding mm-hmm. style that you might imagine that when, when monks are chanting or when you hear um, old church music in, you know, any kind of a, movie then it's it's that sort of plaintive sound so they aren't major chords it doesn't sound positive it just sounds very very smooth but mournful in a way exactly it's if you play a scale based on a certain right note like let's say if you're looking at the piano and if you start on this note versus this note and just go stay on the the white notes per se right it was uh it can has a different feel different feel for each each of those different emotion and, almost and in the history of music they put different names to sure. some of these modes too so well elizabeth i can't thank you enough for the time to talk about this we look forward to you know, i know the orchestra is excited to play this piece and they're excited to hear your solos and uh it, it will be a wonderful wonderful performance i am looking forward to it myself and i'm so glad to get the opportunity to speak to the audience about it We'd like to thank our podcast sponsors, Humanities of Texas, The Ray Charitable Trust, and Frost Bank. I want to remind everyone that tickets are available at the Eisman Center ticket office and on their website at eismancenter.com. Maestro, thank you. It's always great to chat with you. 
And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to Portraits and Music with Maestro Clay Cattorio. I'm your producer and co-host, Ross Sievertson. Remember, if you haven't done so already, hit that subscribe button so you can get new episodes downloaded to you automatically. Reviews and ratings are always appreciated, and it helps us to provide you with more great inside conversations from the Richardson Symphony Orchestra. Until next time.